Welcome to Best Me Radio. I'm your host, Carl Hammington, and I talk to experts in many areas, including movement, psychology, nutrition, as well as other inspiring people who have done extraordinary things, all in an attempt to provide you with the information, inspiration, and tools that will empower you to step into the best version of yourself. Welcome back, Best Me community, and I'm sorry about the recent break. I've been busy behind the scenes developing some really creative workshops, seminars, and products for HealthFit Collective. So go and check out the website to see what's up and coming. Also, I've sourced a sponsor for the show. Um, This is a really exciting product um, that has the potential to change many lives. Uh, Not only is it a quality product, um, but it does its job for the environment too. Um, being sourced from completely sustainable product and even offsetting carbon emissions by 225%. So it does its job for the planet too. So it fits in line with everything we talk about here. It's going to help us move better, be healthier individuals, and it's going to have an impact on most of our lives to a large extent. So watch the space. On to today's interview. Now, this is a chat I've always wanted to have, one that explores perhaps how we may begin to bridge that gap between you know the best of our ancestors and where we are today in order to optimize human health and longevity. So this is a leading researcher in this area. So not someone that's citing research or interpreting research. This is someone who's actually in the field researching it. And that's exciting, you know, because research is often up up for interpretation. So this man is actually going out of his way to learn about these things. So he's currently researching how the the human body may have evolved and how our species deep past shapes our health and physiology today. In this interview, we explore how our ancestors possibly lived, what we can confirm, what we can rule out in terms of what drove human evolution, um, as well as exploring some of the the populations that he studied and and uh, in field studies uh, in terms of modern hunter gatherer tribes in an attempt to understand uh, modern health and human energetics. So these findings were pretty fascinating, um, and even how this came about was really interesting as well. So this will challenge a few of us, and let's just say, in terms of energetics, it's not as simple as calories in versus calories out, um, and. Yeah, we, you'll definitely be challenging what our thoughts are around paleo and primal diets as well. So there's a few big knowledge bombs dropped here. Please enjoy and let me know what you're thinking. All right. Well, I'm Herman Ponser. I'm a professor of anthropology at Duke University, and I study why humans are so weird. <laughs> I study how our <laughs> I study how uh, we burn calories and how our body takes energy in and, and spends it on all the things that evolution cares about, like uh, activity and, and, uh, you know, reproduction, immune function, that kind of stuff. So I'm a, I'm a human evolutionary biologist by training. Um, and I've come to focus a lot on energy metabolism and, and lifestyle and energetics and, and diet as a, as a res, uh, result of that. Uh, thank you for coming on, uh, Herman. It's, I'm pretty excited about this. Um, and I'll, just a little note, I think some humans are definitely a lot weirder than others. And uh, yeah, for sure. Into that category. <laughs> Um, so first of all, just so myself and the listeners can, can get to know you a little better, um, what drove you to study, um, evolutionary anthropology? Yeah, well, you know, I went into college, uh, not really having any idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I went to Penn State University, uh, for undergraduate and I wasn't sure, yeah, what I wanted to do, but I took a fantastic class in human evolution, 
my first semester there and was completely hooked. Uh, just the idea of spending a career thinking about the way that humans got to be the way they are and, and how evolution uh, sort of pushes species around and shapes them in different ways. And the idea that you could spend your life thinking about those things and working on it was just uh, just sounded so so much fun. And um, and I kind of followed up on that. So I went to grad school after that and got sort of more into a physiology, biology uh, lane, uh, thinking about human evolution, um, looking at how locomotion and uh, you know, locomotion evolves. It's a question about why we're walking around on two legs and everything else walks around on four and, and how that changes over the course of, uh, of human evolution um, in terms of energy efficiency. That's, that was the main question I asked in graduate school. Um, and then I kind of expanded that out uh, after grad school to, to ask the bigger question of how do we spend our calories generally? Because, you know, uh, energy expenditure is really central to everything that an organism does. It's, it's you know, energy is the sort of common currency of biology and of life. So I like to say, you know, life is just a game of turning energy into kids. And that's all, you know, that's all, that's all evolution really cares about is how well you do that. So, you know, studying how humans spend our energy seemed like a natural fit for someone with my interests. Yeah. Well, that you kind of answered the the meaning of life right there. So thank you for that. Yeah. It, it's not 42, it's calories. <laughs> nice little um, insert there. That was good. So, <laughs> Um, this this subject, uh, everything you just mentioned, just fascinates me, and I think some of my friends and family get a little bit sick of me, um, you know, talking about this and um, pondering um, mm-hmm. exactly what you're talking about there. So I'm pretty excited. I feel like there's about a million questions I want to ask, um, but I'll try my best to stay on track. <laughs> All right. So yeah, this is a question I'm constantly asking myself. Uh, you know, how has our species, um, you know, evolved? through history what's what's helped shape us and then also i think uh in my world in the health and fitness world um when i think having a reference point as to when we were or are we currently at our healthiest and then Mm -hmm. what is the gap between you know what we know about our ancestors and where we're at today so we'll we'll, we'll dive into that but firstly firstly are there any sort of really important, poignant sort of moments in time uh, that shaped us or evolved us significantly as a species? And if so, what were the main factors that drove this? Yeah, so humans, we're an ape, right? So our closest relatives, uh, our cousins, are the, the living apes. So chimpanzees and bonobos and orangutans and gorillas. Uh, and of course, the gibbons and uh, uh, sea monks as well, a bit further out. And so where, you know, we split from humans split from chimpanzees and bonobos because uh, they hadn't quite divided yet. So they're, they're you know, the, that population splits about seven million years ago. And for the first five million years, we're just walking around on two legs like bipedal apes, apes you know, a yeah. bit like Ewoks. Yeah. So we're eating, <laughs> eating a, a vegetarian diet. Um, I'll probably hunting occasionally chimpanzees and, and bonobos hunt occasionally. So mm. but meat's not a big part of the diet. Interesting. Um, and we're yeah we're you know in East, East Africa there are lots of lots of great fossils and and uh, you know good good uh, hard evidence of, of what those first five million years were like um, we're finding more every day so that, you know these these early hominins are up in the trees a lot they're also on the ground and when they're on the ground they're walking around on two legs so they're we could say that's bipedal um, and you know but it's five million years where, where brain sizes don't change a whole lot um the foods that are being eaten change a bit teeth get big and robust uh, towards the end of that first five million years and so that may maybe means we're eating 
um, sort of less uh, less easy to chew foods, maybe more fibrous, harder foods. Yeah. But you, these are you know ecologically not so different than apes today for the first five million years or so. Um, and so that would include, by the way, if, you, if your listeners or you've heard of Lucy, right, the famous Lucy yep. skeleton, yep. Um, or, or Ardipithecus more recently, those these are those are examples of these sort of early this first five million years. Um, and then uh, what's really cool is in the last about, about two to two and a half million years ago, and this gets pushed back earlier and earlier as we discover more and more, but around two and a half, two million years ago, uh, we start to see a lot more stone tool use. Uh, we begin to see butchered animal bones in some of these sites that also have you know fossil hominins. So hominin is the catch-all term for everything on on the human branch of the family tree once we've split from chimpanzees and bonobos. Okay. So you can impress your friends with New Year's vocabulary. Uh, so <laughs> all, all the dead, <laughs> yeah, that's right. All the dead ends and all the ancestors and all the you know, anything that's on our branch and not on the chimpanzee bonobo branch would be called a, a hominin species. So hominins around two two and a half million years ago, yeah, we, we start to see this big shift in behavior, um, and it's a dietary shift. And we know that diet is super important um, for all aspects of how an animal uh, lives, and that's because. Again, you know, life is a game of turning energy into kids. And where do you get that energy? You get it from the food you eat, yeah, right? Yeah. So the kinds of foods that you eat determine everything from your teeth and your digestive anatomy down to, you know, your behavior and how you go about getting that food. Yeah. Um, it changes the amount of calories you have available to you. Um, and in humans, it had this really big impact, too, in, in the sort of the way that we behave. So, you know, this is the beginning of the hunting and gathering way of life, mm. you know, two and a two and a half million years ago with species like Homo habilis and Homo erectus. Uh, And, you know, that that's, it has just enormous impacts on everything downstream. So we see brain size has been getting bigger ever since, you know, complexity has been getting more complex and sophisticated ever since in terms of behavior. Diet's been getting, you know, kind of shuffled around and and, uh, more and more energy dense. And uh, we've been getting better at getting energy dense foods ever since. Uh, so I think that's, you know, if you had a pinpoint, wow, one moment, you'd love to take a time machine back and see what the hell's going on. Yeah. That, that, that two million years ago, when just, just if you see the beginning of that happening, uh, would be really fabulous. And, and so everything downstream is basically versions of, of, of the, of, of that hunting and gathering lifestyle, right? Okay. We humans, you know, our species shows up about 300,000 years ago, not that long ago in Africa as well. Yeah. Uh, and you know, we are the last hunting and gathering twig on a hunting and gathering branch of, of apes. Wow. So yeah. is it fair to say that, um, I guess what, what, what actually drove this or is it, is it the diet? Is it the increase in calories through, through means? Mm. Was it the ability, uh, to hunt? Um, I know there's some ideas around that as well. Um, that actually drove it. Was there one thing in particular, or was it sort of, is it, is it impossible to say uh, what the actual driver of that? Was? Yeah, I mean, it's it's possible to rule some things out. You know, so so for example, we know that that brain sizes sort of change after we, we get to hunting and gathering. So it wasn't like yeah. our intelligence changed and somehow that brought about that. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, it's it's really hard to pin down exactly why. These why questions are what we spend all of our time. I'm, I'm going to go to a, an anthropology conference uh, tomorrow, actually, spend the next few days talking human evolution, which is with uh, you know, a thousand colleagues. Uh, and it's really fun. And I'll tell you, you know, hmm. during the day, you're going to get a lot of careful discussions about the evidence and what we can say for sure in all yeah. these talks. And then at night, when everyone is at the bar, 
we'll be talking about all the big why questions, right? <laughs> which are really hard to answer, but are really fun and really speculative kind yeah. of, of discussions. Um, you know, the people have tried to pin it down to big changes in climate. Yep. So one idea is that, you know, things get drier. Uh, some of the plant foods that we would de- were depending on kind of get more sparse. And, um, you know, probably lots of local populations of hominins just die out and peter out. But but one of them somehow gets kind of hits on this idea of expanding the expanding the diet and uh, working together to hunt and gather. And, and somehow that that spark, who knows, you know, how it happened. But that that's kind of the way it, it changed things. Um, we, we don't know for sure, though. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess it's, it, it will be hard to prove what that was, but and yeah, we can say, effect, that's the other thing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we can say, you know, you, you mentioned calories and, uh, and sure it has huge effects on calories, right? Yeah. So once we start hunting and gathering and, and sharing our food, which all hunter and gatherers share, um, and we think probably is, is a really ancient behavior because you can't eat a zebra by yourself, right? So you see, if you find a butchered zebra in one of these archaeological sites, which you do, well, that's yeah. probably a shared food. So there's like a um, social component to it as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, think about it. You know, you've, you've never gone a day, I hope, uh, <laughs> without, you know, sitting down with lunch for lunch or dinner or something with friends. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's the exception, not the rule, for sure. And any time we have a big event in our lives, we always share food, right? Yeah. Uh, chimpanzees and bonobos and other apes occasionally share food, but it's kind of grudging sort of sharing. Nobody's going out to buy birthday cakes for anyone else, you know. <laughs> Uh, so it, it's, that's a really big behavioral change, which is probably just as ancient as this diet change, probably a big piece of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, just if, if we're just to touch on the, the social point as well, um, what do we know about, uh, you know, social interaction, um, of some of these, uh, ancestors, um, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, I feel like today we exist more, especially in the Western world around the nuclear family um, versus a community. Mm-hmm. Was there strong evidence to suggest that uh, they were equally as social, less social, or more social? In those, in those it's really hard to put that together. As far as we can tell, um, we've always lived in sort of big camp kind of groups, you know, yeah. whether that was actually a camp to go home to or not is, is yeah. hard to say all the time. But, okay. you know, multiple families living together. And is it multiple families or is it more kind of diffuse than that? That's that's a really big question, too. But, you know, thinking about a community, a, a core community of people that you would interact with every day yeah. of 30, 30 or so people, I, I think that's probably been the norm yeah. uh, for millions of years. I mean, even chimpanzees, right? Chimpanzees and bonobos mm. and even gorillas live in these big social groups. Gorillas live in smaller than, than uh, gorillas and than, uh, bonobos and chimps. But you know, bonobos and chimpanzees will live in groups of 40 or 50 individuals, all of whom you'll see, you know, over the course of a month, you might see all of them a lot. Wow. Uh, and you see a few of them every day. So, yeah. you know, in modern human groups are like that. So uh, that, that probably has been, you know, social interactions social network has probably been a big piece of the the fabric of, of how you live your life yeah, forever yeah. no that makes sense and now um in terms of history um is there a, a a point throughout evolution um as a species that it's argued we were at our our healthiest or is that mm. where we're at today not to be mistaken yeah. for longest living <laughs> yeah right well i mean you know i think um I, so it depends on, on how you want to define healthiest, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think 
today, by almost any measure, we're the healthiest we've ever been. Yep. Um, and, you know, it isn't just about long lives. It's about, although we have that too, mm-hmm. um, our, our children, you know, I've got a little boy and a little girl and uh, I have every reason to expect, and I certainly hope that they'll live long, healthy lives, you know? Yeah. Uh, if you were a hunter, a gatherer, or even a, a sort of farmer, you know, a few thousand years ago, or actually not even that long ago, a few hundred years ago, yeah. you had every reason to think that, you know, something like half of your children might die before they reach their teens, yeah. you know? Uh, so, uh, you know, and that, and that those same kind of infectious disease loads would have yeah. carried on to adulthood too. So I think by any measure, any real measure, I think yeah. this is the best time to be alive. Okay. But that doesn't mean that we aren't screwing some things up yep. immensely. <laughs> that was my next question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, I don't know if you want to, to, to shape that in it's a particular nice way. Segue. Let's, let's just get straight into that. So um, yeah. we can come back to some of the other stuff around that, but I think it's a perfect segue. So what, what do we know we're not getting right at the moment? Because obviously... Yeah. 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 So, I mean, if we look at hunter-gatherer groups uh, alive today and, in, you know, in any that we have data on from the recent past uh, and simple farming groups too, you know, ha- sort of hand technology, you know, subsistence farming groups. Um, they're incredibly healthy in terms of their heart health. Uh, you know, their, their, uh, the way they age well, um, metabolic disease is non-existent, right? So the, the groups I work with and the groups that, that people of other, you know, other people have worked with that are hunting, hunt and gather, um, no heart disease, hardly at all. No diabetes. In fact, the numbers on diabetes are so hard to get. They're so hard to find that it's basically zero. Um, almost no overweight and obesity. Uh, it's hard to be sure, but probably lower rates of cancers, uh, particularly reproductive cancers. Uh, so as far as we can tell, you know, there's all the, all the non-communicable diseases, uh, yeah. Carl, that you and I are going to be most likely to die from. Yeah. <laughs> and all the people you. that we know and love. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's scary it's to think about, but, yeah. but those aren't risk factors in these other places. And so yeah. the question is, how do we take the magic? <laughs> it's not magic, mm-hmm. but how do we take the good things out of those populations yeah, yeah. And, and learn from them uh, in a way that keeps us healthy? Yeah. So that's, that's, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So just 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 quickly, um, what were the who are the the populations of the tribes of the hunter gatherers that you've spent time studying? Uh, well, I've been on the ground uh, living in camps with uh, hods of hunter gatherers in northern wow. Tanzania. That's where I've done most of my my field work. And I should say right, right off the bat, you know, um, there are plenty of people who have done a lot more field work than I have. You know, it's yeah. sort of people who've dedicated their lives, living a lot of their time uh, yeah. there. So, but I've I've been lucky enough to spend. A few uh, summer seasons, research seasons with the Hadza. Uh, and these guys are fantastic. Work around the energetics here. It's really fascinating. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's just amazing stuff. These, these guys, uh, they, they're hunter and gatherers, so they don't have any farming or domesticated animals or machines or anything like that. They, yeah. they get all their food from the wild. And uh, to go and live with, with them and learn from them is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, we're starting a new project up in northern Kenya. Uh, with a pastoralist group. So pastoralists are, by definition, are, are communities that get their um, get their food from the livestock they they tend to. So goats wow. and uh, cow and camel yep. up there. Yep. Um, and it's a very hot and arid climate, and we're trying to figure out sort of what that ecology is like in terms of 
uh, health and, and disease and, and diet and activity and energetics. Yep. And then I've collaborated on work uh, with uh, projects looking at populations in South America and Bolivia and Ecuador, also sort of rural hunting and, and farming groups there. Oh, wow. Fascinating stuff. So what were some of the insights um, or what were some of the big findings uh, spending time with these hunter-gatherers that, and, and the contrast you saw to you know where we're at today in the Western world? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so as you might imagine, you know, if you're going and getting all of your food out of the wild landscape, it's it's a lot of hard work, right? Yeah. So um, the Hadza, for example, um, men go 11 or so kilometers a day on average. Often it's much more. Uh, women are doing five to 10 kilometers as well a day, uh, often with a kid on their back. So it's a lot of hard work. We, we put some numbers on this in a paper a couple of years ago uh, with my colleagues, Dave Reichlin and Brian Wood. Brian Wood is the guy who spent years of his life by now with the Hadza. So Dave and I kind of tag along sometimes, but yeah. Brian's done all yeah. the really heavy lifting with the field work. Uh, but you know, we put some numbers on their activity levels and the Hadza get more physical activity in a day than the typical American gets in a week. I reference that study yeah. a lot. It's fascinating. Yeah, and it's it's no surprise. I mean, you go out and live with these guys and hang out with them yeah. for you know a few few weeks. It's it's just incredible what they do. Um, but so the really surprising thing is uh, we measured energy expenditures daily. So the number of calories burned per day yep. uh, with this technique called doubly labeled water. So it's a uh, the gold standard measurement for energy expenditures. Um, you get it's, it's a measurement that lasts for about a week. So the the average you know calories per twenty four hours that you get is an average over, uh, we did ours about 10 days, actually, with these guys. Yep. Uh, and so it's a good, solid measurement of ca- average calories per day. Um, and we expected, of course, with these high levels of activity, that they would have you know, calorie expenditures that are through the roof. Mm. Um, in fact, that's how we got the grant funding to do the work, because <laughs> we were going to show you know, how, how, uh, how low expenditures were in the U.S. and how high they were uh, with the Hadza. Yep. And what we found, it, nobody ever measured energy expenditures with hunter-gatherers before. Uh, when we did ours, what we found is that the Hadza have the same energy expenditures as you and I do. Wow. Um, well, I don't know about you, but as, a, as, as me as a typical American, you know, <laughs> my energy expenditure is the same as a typical Hadza. Uh, and it's kind of amazing. It blew our minds when we first got those results uh, that that could be true. Um, but what we've found since is we've seen similar results in other groups and, and – um, and other species that for that matter and it's causing us to rethink you know how we imagine energy expenditure and lifestyle are related to one another yeah so is that just do you think the 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 body potentially just becomes more efficient well it depends on what you mean by efficient right i mean on (laughs) on one hand yeah sure they're more efficient because they're doing all this activity and not spending more calories per day yeah but the question is is it something about the movement itself. So, you know, you could, people have asked, well, maybe they walk, when they walk a kilometer, it takes fewer cal- calories than when you walk a kilometer. Mm. Uh, and the answer is, we tested that, and the answer is no. So we had a, a respirometry system we could bring out, a mask-based system to bring out. And we did walking costs, it's the same as everybody else. Yep. Um, what other things that could be changing, um, it, it, it's not magic, right? We're not making any claims about them somehow yeah, yeah, yeah. being magic. Um, so something's got to be giving somewhere. Uh, it's possible that their other behavior, so when they're resting, they sort of rest more fully or more soundly than we rest. Uh, they don't fidget, that kind of stuff. This is an ar- argument that people have made for the last couple of decades in the West when they, we can't explain 
variation in energy expenditures across groups, we say, oh, it's this, this stuff called non-exercise activity thermogenesis or NEAT. I don't know if yep. you've heard of that or listeners have. But, yep. Yep. Uh, we don't think it's that entirely because we don't think that, that there's enough there to explain what we're seeing. We think that's too much to be explained by NEAT, but it's hard to, it's a hard idea to disprove. Yeah. Um, what we think is more exciting and more likely is that their physiology is just adapting to these high levels of activity by, you know, turning down, uh, re allocating fewer calories to other tasks that their body has to do. So yeah. a bit less energy into reproduction and a bit less energy into the immune system and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And by, if you cut enough, uh, you can make room for activity without having to have a higher total budget. Mm. Fascinating um, how adaptable the human body is. Yeah, well, and, and this has you know big implications for what we think about the health benefits of exercise, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, you think about uh, what exercise does for us that makes it so good. And by the way, you know, when these results came out, everybody said, "Oh, you're telling people they don't have to exercise," you know, because you, <laughs> you're not, not going to burn I'm more saying. calories. <laughs> yeah, that's not what I'm saying at all. Yeah. Um, but it, I think it makes us rethink why exercise is so good for yeah. us. Uh, you know. We take, know, and I just put a review on the. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say taking away from just that uh, energy in versus energy out argument. Yeah, right. I mean, it's you know, it might, it might not have to do exercise. Might not change the number of calories you burn. It might change the way that you burn them. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and so we know, for example, that when you exercise, um, inflammation levels go way down. Right, mm. background inflammation levels. Well, what's inflammation? Inflammation is immune system activity that's unnecessary actually you know high levels yeah. of chronic inflammation are just your immune system burning calories it doesn't need to burn right yeah. um we know that active populations like the hadza have lower um so lower levels of steroid hormones like estrogen and testosterone okay. right so that's a, a bit of suppression in the reproductive system mm. yeah the hadza man uh, typical hadza man has testosterone levels half the levels of a of a u.s yeah that's right oh. and you wouldn't i mean you'd have a you see pictures of the Hadza. They're obviously very lean. They yeah. tell you very, very strong, very athletic, in fantastic shape. Yeah. Testosterone levels about half uh, in the U.S. and in Europe. Um, if you look at stress reactivity, you know, so how much your heart rate goes up or how much your um, cortisol levels go up yep. in, in, res in response to stress, that's yep. damped by exercise. People who exercise a lot have less reactivity. Yeah. And so you know that those all that suppressive effect of exercise uh, we think is making room uh, for activity uh, yeah. which means that it doesn't change the bottom line numbers of calories per day but it's actually you know it's that response is that suppressive response that's actually really good for health yeah uh, um, now if you take it too far right if at some point you've cut out all the bad things <laughs> and you don't have anything left to cut out and if you keep on <laughs> increasing your workload past that yeah. well then you can cause trouble right so overtraining syndrome would be sort of the the, the extreme and yeah yeah, yeah. yeah yeah so in terms of movement we'll stick with that for a second um yeah did you notice i don't know if it's documented in your research but did you notice uh in terms of motor patterns some interesting findings like what actual movements were being uh performed by some of these hunter-gatherer tribes well uh the uh we don't have you know sort of fine-grained information on that to yeah. share i don't think but i don't think we've collected it but you know, I can tell you that walking, yeah. <laughs> walking is the main thing. There's a yeah. walk and walk and walk. Uh, men climb trees. Women will a bit, but men mostly are doing it to get honey. Okay. So they eat a lot of honey. Yeah. 
Um, that's, you know, men chop into trees a lot as part of getting honey as well. Women use a digging stick to dig sort of, you know, they'll be, they'll kneel on the ground and, and, uh, use a digging stick to dig out tubers, wild tubers, okay. another big part of the diet. But those are the main things, you know, yeah. that, that we might not think of. Um, you otherwise you're sort of, yeah. sitting down and getting up off the ground. I'm guessing there won't be too many supported seats. Is that right? Or? Oh, there's zero seats. That's right. So they sit on the ground, or they sit on. You know, they might sit on like a rock or something like that, small. Yeah. But they, no, yeah. There's no comfy chairs like the one I'm sitting in right now. No ergonomic chairs. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do they like resting positions for them? Was do they like, for example, you know, the flat foot squat, the deep flat foot squat, seems to be mm. um, quite a, a fashionable movement to integrate back into daily practice and uh, sort of. Yeah, uh, ancestral movement world is that was that observed that you noted? Oh yeah, you see that a lot. That's right. Um, that you, we did see a lot of that. I should say, Dave Reichlin, uh, my colleague, who's moving to U, uh, University of Southern California this coming fall. Yeah. Uh, he's got a study underway on this, and he hasn't. We haven't published it yet, ah. but it's uh, looking at exactly this issue. And I don't have numbers to share. I don't. I don't. I don't know what they are yet. I, but um, but these kinds of natural sitting postures and resting postures are definitely the kinds of things that, that we went there to look at. Uh, yeah. And Dave's leading the, the effort on that. Fantastic. It'll be interesting yeah. to see how that, um, you know, the results. Yeah, I'm excited as well. Yeah. And uh, in terms of footwear, <laughs> so was uh-huh. it generally barefoot or were there, you know, some... No, some they, they generally wear they generally wear uh, sandals made from repurposed tire treads. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Or, and if they don't wear those, I mean, you know, there are still a few of the older folks um, I think I've seen exactly two people with these on yeah. in, in time there, but they're rare, but uh, who make them out of leather. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so they, I don't see kids will run around barefoot. Yeah. Uh, mostly because they don't have shoes available to use. You yeah. know, they, they can't go to the store and get them. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, it's really thorny and rocky there. And so if so you had. It's quite useful. Yeah. If you had it, you, you use it. I mean, I've seen, I've seen guys, you know, men who don't hunt for a day or two because they've got a really nasty thorn, you know, yeah. gash or something like that in the, in their foot. And it just really sidelines them. So yeah. it's not trivial, you know, the issue of foot protection, not trivial at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of movement outside of, you know, survival, hunting and gathering and uh, mm-hmm. just general means of transport, were there physical games or dance or anything like that that you observed? Yeah, they dance. They have, uh, they, they, you know, they like to just sing and dance. They're like a really happy, fun group of folks. Uh, and but we've seen, yeah, you, you see dances occasionally. Um, uh, that that's pretty much what I would say about okay. that. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, in terms of diets, um, <laughs> um, calorie or sorry, I should say energy uh, consumption uh, mm-hmm. versus the average American or probably yeah. average Kiwi as well, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. how, how, did, how did that contrast? And then, then maybe what was involved in that that energy? So, what were the actual food sources that you noticed? Yeah. Well, you know, it gets to there. We have that that ten day long measurement of energy expenditure for them, and we we were weighing them the whole time, right? Not the yep. whole time, but we weighed them at the beginning, of the, at the end. Yeah. And so we know their weight stable. So we know that that you know during these best measurements that we can get for their energy flow in and out, uh, their weight stable, and their energy expenditures are the same as typical American. Uh, and I should say that's corrected for body size. They're actually a bit lower than a typical American because they're a sort of a shorter statured 
yeah. uh, population. Oh, I might fit in. This is, this is, yeah, this is taking <laughs> a body size into account. Um, anyhow, so uh, their energy intakes are going to be the same as well, right? Because they're they're not losing weight, they're not gaining weight, and their their calorie intakes matching their calorie expenditure. Yeah. Um, so typical, you know, they're they're unremarkable in terms of the calories they're eating every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cal- now now the macronutrients that make up their diet are a I have to say, a lot different than you often you know, hear about, read about when people talk about so-called paleo diets, yeah, which know? is ba- literally nearly carb-free, isn't it? Yeah, I don't yeah. know how I don't know how carb-free diets became synonymous <laughs> with paleo, yeah. uh, but uh, the Hadza would have a good laugh about that. I yep. have to say, um, about fifteen to twenty percent of their calories every day, uh, on average, over the course of a year. Now, you know, they'll fluctuate day to day, but it's about. Uh, 15 to 20% of their calories come from honey, <laughs> which is just sugar and water. Just, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the other big staple in their diet is these tubers, these, these uh, root vegetables, Starchy these wild root vegetables. Yeah, yeah super starchy. Um, and they eat a fair amount of meat. You know, probably meats uh, makes up, you know, 40 to 50% of their calories. It's a little bit hard to say, you know, yeah. month to month, but something like that, but a huge amount of their diet comes from carbs and, uh, and even sugars. And, you know, and the meat that they eat is quite lean. And so, uh, you know, they'll eat organ meats as well. Of course, as yeah. they, they'll eat the entire animal, but the muscle itself is very lean because that's what, how what game sort, animals what are. Animals? What sort of animals are they? Um, Anything is fair game except reptiles. Okay. They don't oh, like really? Reptiles. Yeah. It's a sort of a social, a uh, cultural taboo. Okay. Um, but, you know, I've been in camps where they're eating zebra or kudu or warthog, you know, deek deek, any any of the antelope, any of the hooved animals on yeah. the landscape um, yeah. are fair game. And, and uh, yeah, they'll, they'll go for anything. And if they started farming in terms of... Um... There are some parts of the Hadza region um, that where they've started to farm a bit. So, you know, this brings up an really interesting point. They're yeah. not... They're not sort of trapped in amber, you know. <laughs> they're, they're not time machines. No, no. Uh, they are. They're a, a living, dynamic population, the same as as yeah. New Zealand or the U.S. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the way to think about it is here in the U.S. We have a group called the Amish, yep. right? That are transplants from Europe who have, since the 1600s or 1700s, held onto their traditional farming lifestyles, yeah, yeah. right? So they just re- they reject modernization completely, and they still use horse and buggy and that kind of stuff to get around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the Hadza are the same way. They know about the outside world, but they generally just prefer to keep their own culture. Uh, but that's not to say that some of them haven't decided in, in some parts of of their of their region that oh well, maybe I'll try a bit of farming or you know maybe I'll do a bit of this or that. Yeah. They're not. You know, they're not. Not completely restricted. Yeah. Yeah. And so there are some that farm a bit. Um, Obviously, when we go to these camps, we're interested in, in what a hunting and gathering lifestyle looks like. You know, we, we go to camps that are more remote and whether it's just hunting and gathering. But yeah. Um, but yeah, some of them hunt. Some of them, sorry, I should say some of them farm. Yeah, interesting. So I'm going to take a step back and uh, you brought up uh, the paleo diet before. And I, I'm mm-hmm. just wondering if you've got any comments to make around why the paleo sort of lifestyle has become so popular. And why you know Paleolithic ancestors were perhaps uh, or are glorified in the exercise and yeah. World. Well, you know, uh, people have always, as far as I can tell, as far as we have written literature for, you know, 
have always bemoaned the fact that things aren't as good as they used to be, you know? <laughs> The, the good, like even in ancient Greece, people were, you know, writers were, you know, the, the golden age of Greece was this idea that you know, back, it's sort of like the Garden of Eden. It's a similar kind of story that, you know, back in the day, everything was perfect. <laughs> back in my day. Uh, yeah. And, you know, Rousseau's, you know, noble savage ideas and enlightenment ideas kind of hearken to that. Uh, even, you know, Karl Marx, this idea, uh, the Communist Manifesto is all based on this idea that things used to be great, yeah. you know? <laughs> were they really? Um, yeah, I'm not so sure. I mean, um, the politics of all that aside, the, the idea that there was some perfect past that we've all fallen from, you know, it's a really, um, really it's kind of a sexy nice idea. idea. It? It's a sexy idea. It's, a tr it's attractive because, you know, who doesn't have a life that they wish they could would be better? And who yeah. doesn't think, oh, God, things used to be so much simpler, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I think we, in our own lives, forget how annoying it used to be. <laughs> you know, you know, if you live long enough, uh, you kind of look back to your childhood. Oh, oh gosh, that was really great. And I mean, hopefully yeah. unless you've had a horrible childhood, but if <laughs> yeah. you had a, a good childhood, you think, oh man, that was really nice. Yeah. Um, and mom and dad seem to not be stressed at all about money and yeah. health and everything. <laughs> uh, of course they were, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think this, uh, if you couch anything as, as well, look, the reason everybody's sick today is because we have forgotten this, the wisdom of the ancients, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's attractive whether or not you, you dress that in a scientific explanation or not. Uh, so I think paleo is, was always going to be glorified and sexy that way. Yeah. But I think what makes it better than just a story, right? What makes modern public health approaches that take this evolutionary perspective on, what makes them better than just a story and better than that is that... Um, it, it is true that there are a lot of diseases that are afflicting us, you know, in the developed world that didn't used to afflict humans, right? Yeah. Yep. That much really is true. And we can actually go and study these populations still. Thank, thank God they're still around yep. um, and, are, and are willing to work with us and find out, God, what's your secret? What, what, did, what changed exactly that's made us, you know, in particular ways mm. so sick now? Um, and so there's this kernel of truth to it, and there's certainly a big scientific reality to it, which is that this is actually a really great framework in public health, this, this evolutionary perspective. Um, but it gets mixed into this kind of, you know, very sexy, glorified thing in, in a lot of, of the paleo diet yeah. uh, discussions today, I think. So, you know, like a lot of this stuff, kernel of truth not an invalid perspective at all. Yeah. Um, but the way it gets packaged and marketed is, can be really misleading, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, as you mentioned before, like, uh, even some of the modern hunter gatherers, um, are free of a lot of these chronic diseases that oh, sort yeah. of plague us today. So yeah. can, can we take some of those lifestyle factors, um, um, you know, in terms of maybe movement, food, uh, yeah. maybe connection, you know, if we look at ecology as well, mm -hmm. like, can we take mm -hmm. some of these principles and do you think they will benefit us uh, in the in, in the Western world? I absolutely think that. And if, you know, the reason I think that is uh, it just seems so obvious that if we would get moving more and, mm. you know, be careful about what we're eating more and, and be more in tune with our social networks more, <laughs> get outside more, yeah. um, you know, you don't have to study hunter-gatherers to know that those are all healthful things. You know, if we look um, epidemiologically, uh, you know, I'm not sure what the status is 
in New Zealand, but it's it's grim here in the states, you know. And um, in terms of people's long term health, well, you know, the thing about America is you don't have to visit us because we'll we'll come to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's certainly uh, the case here. Yeah, Edward Abbey said that about Los Angeles once, yeah. and I think it's true. Um, you don't have to visit us; it'll it eventually it'll get it'll reach you. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, I think if I, I'll say this: if I didn't think that there was a lot to learn and really be gained from this work, I wouldn't be doing it. Um, yeah. I think it's a lot of interesting science, but I think it's also a lot of helpful science. Um, and you know, and I think what we can take away is uh, that. The enormous amount of, of physical activity these guys get every day, the HODs and other groups, is surely a reason that they don't get any of the, you know, the heart and, and other metabolic diseases yeah. that we get. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, we have to maybe rethink exactly what that exercise is doing, right? I don't, it isn't making them burn more calories, right? Yeah. Because if it was, then we'd, we'd see that. We don't see that. So... Um, Instead, you know, what seems to be happening is it's changing the way their bodies burn the calories, not the number they're burning. Uh, And that seems an important lesson. And what it means is, you know, in terms of watching our weight and weight, you know, preventing obesity at the societal level, you know, we should be focused on diet and how many calories people are taking in and how easy it is to overeat and and the foods that are engineered to make you overeat. You know, I I think that's... So I think it helps clarify things because it says, look, you need to exercise to stay healthy, yeah. but you need to watch your diet to maintain a healthy weight. Um, and of course, those things are interdependent and integrated. But yeah. there's many layers we, to that as well, isn't there? Yeah. But I think if we focus on exercise and diet yeah. as two different tools, with two different jobs, yeah. we'll be ahead of the game. Now, it's interesting. I, I, I can see some overlap here. I interviewed... Um, some people that have spent time living with the uh, the San, in particular, mm-hmm. studying uh, the microbiome, actually, and yeah. observations yeah. from that side. And obviously, there's Jeff Leach's work as well. Sure, yeah. Around that too. Sure. And it's just fascinating, you know, in terms of the food and um, mm-hmm. how the food is prepared. Um, you know, that's that's a whole other another layer to add to that. You know, you start yeah, to question. Sure. You know, have we have we created uh, an environment that's a little bit too sterile, maybe, and are we eating enough, uh, you know, wild food or just real, real veggies, <laughs> for example? Yeah, I fiber mean, in our diets and yeah, I mean the fiber thing I think is huge. If you looked at hard to diets versus the standard U.S. diet, um, well, there's there's lots of small differences, but the big difference that leaps out at you at the macro scale is they're getting 100 grams of fiber a day. Wow, you know, so yeah. U.S. folks get you know 10 or 20. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that has big knock-on effects on everything from, you know, the glycemic load that you get from your sugars to uh, the microbiome, you, you know, the yeah. ecosystem in your belly, the, all of it. You know? mm. Yeah. No, that's, um, that's fascinating stuff. Um, yeah, and, and what you mentioned in terms of the, you know, the movement patterns and, and things like that just mm-hmm. completely overlaps what, uh, what they were saying as well. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now I've got a I've got a question for you. So I know with research and when you learn more about certain subjects, it often leads to more questions and answers. Um, of course. But if yeah. you could solve uh, one or two big questions, if you could choose one thing that you you could just know the answer to right now, hmm. what would that be? <laughs> How does your body respond to changes in exercise to keep your metabolism? 
on an even keel, even though you have these big, you know, potentially big changes in lifestyle. You know, human metabolism is incredibly robust and stable, yeah. right? We look across populations, across lifestyles. And if you tell me somebody's lean mass, I can tell you how many calories they burn. And that's, that's almost all I need to get a pretty good guess. I don't need to know everything else about them. Yeah. Uh, and so somehow our body, whether it's sort of organizational at the level of, you know, central nervous system organization of everything on the way down, or if it's more decentralized, that's where our cells respond to, you know, the nutrients circulating in there and, and oxygen circulating in there in yep. the blood. We, we don't know, but somehow our bodies are extraordinarily good. Seven billion of us on the planet yeah. and incredibly different, diverse lifestyles, and they yeah. all adapt to it in really similar ways. Mm. Um, and then the flip side of that, that's one thing. I, I'm going to go for two things I'd like to know. Yep. The second thing I'd like to You're know is... <laughs> yeah, sure. And the second thing I'd like to know is, uh, is once we understand why everybody's so, so similar, I want to begin to understand why they're so different. Because we actually don't have a good handle on why, for example... You might be burning 3,000 calories a day, and I might be burning 2,500 calories a day, even if we have the same lifestyle and the same body build and all that. Mm -hmm. uh, so humans, as a as sort of as a rough measure, are very similar to one another. Populations are very similar to one another, but there's variation among people that we don't have a great handle on how that works. Um, and you know, I, I think of energy expenditure as one of the most basic things we could measure about an animal, yeah. us included, um, and to not be able to understand this um, that how it works just seems so obviously screamingly in need of of, a, of of more science. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that I can see the practical application of that as well because you know that's oh, the yeah. things that you know our industry in the wellness world. You know, we we see a lot of that. You know, one size in terms of the approach just you know it doesn't fit all. You know, yeah, one person's medicine is another person's poison in terms of uh, food, yeah. exercise, you know, sleep patterns, or you know, there's so many different uh, variables, and it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Do you think uh, the endocrine system has a little bit to do with this? In terms well, of, like, of course. the way that we put, you know. <laughs> yeah. Once again, is it cause yeah. and effect? It's hard to tell, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think, so my take on it is that, uh, you know, our bodies are running, um, they are constantly aware of energy coming in and energy going out, mm. right? They're very, you'd imagine after a half billion years of, of multicellular life on this planet, right? Yeah. <laughs> we've got some really ancient uh, tricks up our sleeves about how we, we manage that, not just us, any other animal. Yeah. Um, and, you know, well, how do you control those things? Well, the, the control levers, all the circuitry in our body, it's either, it's either endocrine or it's, or it's neural, right? I mean, that's sort of your two choices for signaling across the body and turning things up and down. So, Absolutely, the hormonal you know control is going to be a huge piece of it. Um, I don't think, you know, the systems are so redundant and and integrated that I will be shocked if if it's as simple as oh hmm. oh it's leptin, <laughs> you know <laughs> oh oh it's at a you know, you know yeah, this, I was I'm old enough to remember when play, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm old enough to remember when leptin was kind of coming <laughs> to the fore, and everybody was so excited about it. And you get these leptin knockout mice that look like, you know, little softballs. Uh, and it's just incredible, you know. And you think, well, gosh, that's got to be it. Um, but, you know, just like all the genetic work over the last couple of decades has been shown just how complicated it is. Um, 
yeah, I think it, I think it's going to be more than just any one oh, thing. But I, yeah. I can imagine you must see sort of trends come and go, and that probably helps you maintain a healthy uh, skepticism as well. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you my next my next thing. I'm I'm not. I won't say skeptical because it's obviously really really important. But I think we're still waiting to to hear what it has to tell us. Is all the microbiome work out there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, clearly very important, clearly central to a lot of the stuff. The signaling that we're getting out of that, you know, that people can show uh, is, is just amazing. Um, and obviously it's, it's the machinery that's digesting a lot of your food. So it's, you know, clearly on the front lines. Yeah. Um, but we still have so much to figure out about exactly how it works yeah. right now. We have, you know, all these species lists about, Oh, this is different than that. And this changes, but we don't have, you know, it's, it's almost like, trying to understand the differences between different kinds of cars and all we have right now is the parts list right we don't know <laughs> it's okay we've got 10 more bolts in this one you know but but we don't know what it does so we'll find out uh soon i hope but it's that's that's a, that's that's a question big one, eh? that's a big one yeah and you know it's even some research showing now that um you know is it cause or effect as well so you start to look at you know autonomic nervous system function and uh, heart rate variability and you know, yeah. that environment that that creates can influence the microbiome significantly right. as well. So, right. you know, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, I can see this uh, leading to more questions <laughs> rather than answers. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But if we take some of your wisdom from today, it's, it's basically um, move more. <laughs> um, yeah. And become aware of your, your food choices um, mm-hmm. and the energy that you're, you know, consuming as well. Those are some of the big points, aren't they? I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Get outside. Watch what you eat. Yeah, sounds good to me. <laughs> so, on that note, I always give uh, a final question to every single guest on the show, and that is: if one people, uh, sorry, if everyone could uh, apply one piece of information, an idea, or even uh, ponder a question, um, if you could impart one piece of wisdom for the listeners, what would that be? All right, I'm going to go back to what I said before, which is that we have to think about exercise and diet as two different things. Right, you can't out. You can't run enough to earn your donut, <laughs> and you and and you can't eat you know piously enough to to avoid the gym. Uh, your body needs to move, and it needs to watch what it eats. And there's just no getting out of doing both of those things. That's it. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.